0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. It's great to be here with you this evening. If you have your Bible or your tablet or your smartphone, go ahead and click or turn with me to the book of Ezra chapter 1. I'm excited to be launching into this brand new series with you tonight, kicking off our study in the Old Testament book of Ezra. And the title of my message for you tonight is The Return. The Return and uh, just set things up for us like this. I, I don't know about you, but just watching that makes me think of all those TV shows where they take either an old car, or maybe it's an old house, and they shine it up, and they restore it, and they bring it back to its former glory. And It's, it's always fun to see something be brought back or resurrected back to its former state, its original condition. I was uh, reading this past week in preparation for the study about one of the more extensive restoration projects that's ever been undertaken. And the one I was reading about was um, the Sistine Chapel. And I guess back in 1980, they began a restoration process on the frescoes there that adorned the walls and ceilings of the Sistine Chapel in Rome in Italy. And they, they collected this group of expert artisans from around the world, experts in their field. And over the course of, listen to this, over the co- course of 14 years, painstakingly long years, they went to work on these world-famous paintings, bringing back the colors and the light and the life to them that hadn't been seen in generations. And the end result made all the hard work worth it in the end. The restoration was said to have had a profound effect on art lovers and historians as colors and details that had not been seen for centuries were revealed. Some went so far as to say that after the restoration, every book on Michelangelo would have to be rewritten. And I think that's kind of what a good restoration project does, right? It reveals or gives us a window into the original intent or design of the artist. Of course, you see where I'm going with this. It's not just paintings or cars or buildings that get restored, but God does the same thing with people and people's lives too, doesn't he? Somebody say amen to that. And really restoration is one of the mega themes of scripture. Creation itself, it it longs to be restored to its Eden-like state, and and it's one of the, the yearnings inside of every human heart. We get a sense there's an echo of a life that was that we've lost, and we're desperately trying to get back to Eden, and so all of creation, Paul says in Romans, groans, and it longs to be restored. And so restoration is this continual theme that pops up over and over again in scripture, and it's one of the dominant themes in this book that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. Actually, the book of Ezra can be broken up into three different sections. The first part of the book deals with the return of God's people from exile in Babylon, where they had spent 70 years. Then In the second part of the book, it focuses on the restoration of the altar and the temple there in Israel. And then the third part, it focuses on this ensuing revival that happens among the Jewish people. So three parts that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. The return of the people, the restoration of the temple, and then revival among God's people. And as we do that, as we look at those topics... What I believe we're going to see is that God is going to be doing a restorative work in our lives. He's going to be bringing us back into that purpose and will and alignment of his design and intent when he made us in the first place. So with all of that being said, as a way of introduction, let's go ahead and begin reading our our text in verse 1. We're just going to read through the whole chapter. So go ahead and begin with me there in verse 1. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And may their God be with them. And in any locality where the survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem." Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And all their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the inventory. He goes through the gold dishes, silver dishes, silver pans, gold bowls, silver bowls, other articles. In all, he says in verse 11, in summation, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. All right, so what are we reading here? What is this all about? Well, obviously this chapter, it's this proclamation that's given by a king of Persia. His name is Cyrus, and we're gonna dig deep into this guy and his background and the history and the importance of this. But to get us started, what I want you to notice is that there are really two headlines that are given to us in the first verse. If Babylon had a daily newspaper, then the headline of that paper might have read something like this. Cyrus, king of Persia, issues proclamation allowing Jews to return to their homeland. And that was the the headline of the Babylonian newspaper. But there was another headline there buried in verse one. And Ezra gives us the headline behind the headline, if you will, when he tells us that this happened in order that the word of the Lord that was spoken through Jeremiah might be fulfilled. You see, guys, there's always two sides to every story. You've heard that said, right? There's two sides to every story, and that is certainly true. It's true in this sense. There's heaven's perspective of a thing, and then there's Earth's perspective of a thing. And so from the earthly perspective, what we see is a pagan king flexing his political muscles to accomplish his earthly purposes in Israel and in Babylon. But from heaven's perspective, something completely different was going on. You see, in the eyes of heaven, God is the one pulling the strings of this man named Cyrus. He's playing him like a marionette, like a puppeteer, and he's pulling the strings in order to bring about the fulfillment of a word, a word of prophecy that had been given over 100 years earlier by a guy named Jeremiah. So if we were to read heaven's newspaper, it would say something like, King Cyrus allows the Jews to return home in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So this is a perfect example of this whole concept that there are two sides to every story. You see, Cyrus thought he was the one calling the shots, but in reality, what we learn here is that he was just a pawns in the hands of an almighty God. The, The scriptures, the Proverbs talk about how the heart of a king is directed By the will of the Lord, like a a river, the Lord just directs the will of kings. So why was God going to such great lengths to allow Cyrus or force Cyrus to allow the Jews to return home? Home. Well, again, it goes back to this prophecy that gets alluded to in verse 1, this prophecy that was given by none other than Jeremiah. Long before the events of Ezra chapter 1 ever took place, God had spoken through his prophet Jeremiah, and he had foretold that the Jewish people, because of their willful and continued defiance and disobedience of his laws, that they were going to be carried away as captives into a foreign land, the land of Babylon. And so that's what happened in 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar came through, and he took the Israelites captive. But it gets even crazier than that, because... Incredibly and exactingly, in addition to telling the people that they would be carried away as captives to Babylon because of their disobedience, Jeremiah also told the Jewish people exactly just how long they could plan on being there in Babylon. He told them the exact number of years that their stay would encompass. And and I want to read the verse to you, it's in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Keep in mind, this all happened well before any of the events that we're reading about in um, Ezra chapter 1 took place. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years have been completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in allowing you to return to this place. So there was a time limit on God's judgment on the Jewish people. So why 70 years then, you ask? Well, I'll tell you why. It all tied to and was related to their disobedience in one particular area. And the scriptures talk about how, in addition to keeping the weekly Sabbath, the Sabbath day that was set apart, and it was holy unto the Lord, and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath day, in addition to that, God also called on his people to allow the land of Israel to lie fallow every seventh year. Now in our modern context, we know that there are serious um, agricultural ramifications to this, and it allows the soil and the the nutrients in the soil to replenish themselves. And so God was giving them excellent advice. But they didn't know any of that back then. And so the Israelites decided, I don't really want to follow that rule. I mean, they saw that they could go in the seventh year and continue to work the land and harvest the crops. And Nothing happened after year one, so they did it again the following year, and they continued to ignore this command of God to allow the land to rest. Part of the reason God wanted them to do that, by the way, was so that they would learn to trust in him and rely upon him as their daily source of provision and bread. But they continued to ignore the Lord, and you want to know how long they ignored the Lord for? Any guesses? actually 490 years, 490 years, they continuously ignored this command of God and God, you know, he did the math and well, you owe me every seventh year, 490 divided by seven is 70. I figured that out on a calculator. That's not my head. So 70 years, God says, you owe me. And so he pulls them away. He says, if you're not going to obey me, then I'll just have to pull you out because you owe me this time. And so it was, like I said, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he overthrows the Jewish people and carries them away as captives in accordance with the word of the Lord. Now, this is where the plot gets a little thicker, because one of the young men that was carried away in that that first carrying away of captives was a young man named Daniel, Daniel of Lion's Den fame, you know him, and he has a book in the Bible named after him, my namesake, Daniel. And Daniel was carried away, and he was a really brilliant guy, and so he ended up serving in the king's cabinet there with all of his um, court people and all of his wise men. But the whole time he was there, and Daniel served under a, a number of different Babylonian kings and regimes and empires, For decades, but the whole time he's there, his heart longs to be back in Jerusalem. You remember how he used to pray with, open up his window and pray towards Jerusalem every day. His heart longed to be there. Well, one day as Daniel is reading his Bible, because Daniel was the kind of guy that had a daily devotion. And the scriptures tell us this is fascinating. Daniel comes to the part in Jeremiah 29 where that verse we just read pops up. 70 years are determined upon you. And, and after 70 years, I'll bring you back. And Daniel's reading in his devotions, having his quiet time with the Lord like we do. And he sees that verse and he does the math and he concludes that, man, the years are almost up. If God took us away 586. It's almost time where God's going to be drawing us back to himself. And so that kicks his prayer life into a whole nother gear. And this is what I really love about Daniel. You see, Daniel not only was he a Bible student, not only was he a prophecy nut, but Daniel was the kind of guy who held his Bible in one hand, or I got my Bible in this hand, Bible in one hand, and the newspaper in the other hand, and he looked for places where those two things would converge or intersect, and then he sought ways to get involved, and I love that about Daniel. We need to follow his example, and not just Read the Bible like it's a dry history book, like it's a dull textbook. But we need to read it the way it was intended to be read. This is a living book, and it speaks to the events happening in our day right now, just like it spoke to Daniel in his day back then. All right, so before we move on, and we're going to talk about Cyrus next, but I just want to back up and paint the big picture and set the stage for us. On the one hand, we see. Jeremiah the prophet, over a 100 years before the fact, foretelling and prophesying that the Jewish people would be pulled away as captives into the land of Babylon, but that they would be there for 70 years before God allows them to return. And then on the other hand, we have God plucking up this young man named Daniel, putting him in the court of the Babylonian kings. And he's reading the scripture and he's connecting the dots between what Jeremiah said 100 years earlier and what's happening in his life right then And all of that leads us to the next guy in our story, and that's Cyrus. So who is Cyrus and how does he fit into this whole picture? And this, guys, is where things just go from awesome to awesomer, more awesome, insane. This is so cool. Because not only does God tell his people you're going to be carried away as captives, Not only does he tell them exactly how long they can expect to be held there in Babylon, but additionally, through the prophet Isaiah, God, listen, God actually tells the Israelites the name of the king who is going to set them free. Now, that's something that only God can do. 100 years before Jeremiah, who was 100 years before Cyrus. So now we're talking about 200 years before the events of Ezra chapter 1 take place. God says this through the prophet Isaiah. And this is Isaiah 44, verses 24 and kind of 28. We're going to just read some of it. But you might want to jot this down because this is one of the strongest arguments Uh, in favor of the prophetic nature of scripture And, and listen to what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer. I say, listen, God is saying this through Isaiah the prophet 200 years before Cyrus is even born. He says, I say your Redeemer, I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd This is a pagan king, but God calls him my shepherd. And he says he's going to perform all my pleasure saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. This is amazing. 200 years before Cyrus is born, God calls him out by name and says, you're my guy and you're going to allow the Jews to return home and you're going to lay the foundation of the temple. Again, only God could do something like this. In fact, this prophecy was so specific. It was so exact. It was so precise that for, for, for generations, it was thought that, and it was assumed widely so, that Isaiah must have been written after all of these va- events transpired, because there's no way he could have been that dead on with his predictions. And so that was the prevailing wisdom of the time, until... 1946, because you see, in 1946, there were these, these, this tribe of nomadic Bedouin shepherds, and they were doing their thing, shepherding in Qumran, and they were, this one of them was throwing rocks into this cave, and he heard the rock make a weird sound. And so he went into the cave to investigate what the rock had hit, and he found these clay jars. And inside the clay jars, he found these really old manuscripts. And so one thing led to another, and those manuscripts were brought to museums, and they ended up becoming what we know, now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what the Dead Sea Scrolls did was they provided a timeline of events, and they validated the authenticity of what we're holding in our laps. Because they were able to take these really ancient manuscripts that they were able to time date, and they were able to measure them against what we have. And they found that it was completely accurate. It was the same. And by the way, they found out that Isaiah, which was the very first scroll that they pulled out, it was Isaiah. And it was complete. It didn't have any gaps. It wasn't missing anything. And they, were, they dated it long before Cyrus ever lived, just like God's word says. Amen. Somebody say amen. That's cool. But then the critics, they said, well, well, maybe we got it wrong. It wasn't that Isaiah lived after Cyrus. It, it's just that Cyrus never existed. And that was kind of the prevailing thought for a while until 1879. That's when a group of British archaeologists digging in Iran discovered this barrel-shaped cylinder made out of clay. And this is what they found. Inscribed on the cylinder in ancient cuneiform was a decree by none other than King Cyrus of Persia. And in the 40-line decree, the king recalled his defeat of Babylon. And he clearly outlined a number of policies designed to defend the rights of the conquered. And just in case you don't believe me and don't want to take my word for it, you can go view this artifact for yourself because it's on display right now in the British Museum. The whole thing is just mind-boggling when you consider all of the Pieces and parts that had to come together in order to fulfill this one prophecy. And that's not even taking into account the incredible nature of the the military victory that Cyrus had when he defeated Babylon. You have to understand that at the time, Babylon was the dominant superpower of the earth, it was thought to be impenetrable. The, the the, The surface area of Babylon, the ancient city, was 196 miles. By ancient standards, that is just massive. By any standard, that's massive. It was surrounded by these huge walls that stretched 311 feet up into the sky. On the top, those walls were 87 feet thick. (laughs) That's really thick walls. They were so thick, in fact, that you could race chariots around the top of them, and that's exactly what they used to do. And then there were inner walls. And then controlling access through this barrier were more than 100 bronze gateways. There was the mighty Euphrates River that wove its way through the heart of downtown Babylon. It was thought that it would never fall. And Cyrus sought to do the impossible. He sought to take on and take out Babylon. So how did he do it? Well, his plan was actually quite simple. And he built a huge reservoir way up the way, away from Babylon, and he diverted the water from the river Euphrates into this reservoir that he had constructed or dug. And then he waited until the water level got down, until it was just at about the men's knees, his soldiers' knees. And he waited until it was the cover of darkness, and he sent his soldiers into the city by going through the, the river Euphrates. But that was just the first part of their problems, because once they got through, he didn't know what was going to happen on the other side. I mean, it could have just been a massive kill box. If, if all the soldiers had been waiting, they could have just plucked off the Persian soldiers like they were fish in a barrel. But on the particular night that Cyrus just so happened to launch his attack, on that particular night, none of the soldiers were there. All of the gates were open. Why? Well, because on that night, Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar, the imperial guard, the soldiers, and all the people of Babylon were too busy partying. They were consumed with drinking and games. You can read about this in the book of Daniel if you like. And they failed to close the gates and station the guards. And what this did is it allowed Cyrus and his men to just come in and without even firing a single shot or lifting a single sword, they were able to just take out Babylon, mighty Babylon, magnificent Babylon in a single night. So all of this explains How Cyrus was able to take out Babylon. But we haven't yet discussed why he let the Israelites return to their homeland and build their temple. And this is where all of those seemingly disconnected and disjointed storylines suddenly converge and connect. Here's what I think happened. I think that as Cyrus makes his way into Babylon, he overthrows the kingdom, he makes his way into the courts, there he would have seen and run into none other than Daniel. And it's my belief, I've got a hunch, and I can't wait to go to pull the Netflix out in heaven and watch this scene play out, but I have a hunch that in that moment, Daniel, who was a high-ranking member of the courts in Babylon, pulled Cyrus aside and said, I wanna show you something. And I think he pulled out the prophecies of Jeremiah. And I think he pulled out, more specifically, the prophecy of Isaiah. And he found chapter 44, verses 24 through 28. And he began to read to him how 200 years earlier, God had called him out by name. And he said, I set you apart to let my people return home and to lay the foundation of the temple. And you say, that's a bit of a stretch, Daniel. I mean, you're reading a lot into the text. Am I? I don't know. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. He seems to allude to the fact that he had an encounter with God. He says in verse 2, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, he's given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and I guess he appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. So who am I to fight him? Even this pagan king, in other words, had to admit that there were far too many coincidences for it to just be that. It was a God thing. He even went so far as to speak of how he had been appointed by the God of heaven to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But it even gets better than that because when you jump down to verses seven through 11, Cyrus says, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm shook by this and I'm gonna allow you to return home but in addition to that, God lays it on his heart to have the people of Babylon foot the bill for the building of the temple. Because when it's God's will, it's God's bill. And if it's God's desire, then he's going to see to it that you have the resources to accomplish his purposes in your life. Amen. And so you see that all the people began to giving and and they're giving like, well, you can read about it. Gold dishes, silver dishes and silver pans, gold bowls and all the rest. And then Cyrus goes into the storehouses and he pulls out all of the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken 70 years earlier that were a part of the worship of God in the temple services. And he says, here, take these two. And he says to all the people, hey, whoever wants to go, if you're Jewish, you have my my blessing to return home. Now, interestingly, not everyone did. In fact, we know that only a very small Number of Jews actually left Babylon to return to Jerusalem. It says in, I think it's verse 5, that all those whose hearts God had moved prepared to go and build the house of the Lord. So it wasn't everyone, it was just a remnant. Here's what happened the people in Babylon, the Jews who had been carried there as captives, they eventually ended up building homes, building lives building businesses, and they felt like they couldn't just uproot their lives to return home. They, they, they cheered on those people who went, but they said, for me, I gotta be here. I've got, I've got kids, I've got grandkids, I've got, I've got a wife to feed, and I've got a business to take care of, and, and so it was that they missed out on what God wanted to do. But there was a remnant, a remnant that returned. There always is. So as we close this evening, There are two takeaways, two things that I think a text like this serves to speak to us about. And the first is this. I think this story, on one level, speaks to us about the trustworthiness of scripture. Everyone, if you have a Bible, lift it up. If you've got a phone or a tablet with the Bible on it, go ahead and just lift this book up. Lift it up high, lift it up high. I want to see all the Bibles in here. This is rad. This book that you're holding in your hands, this book, you can put it down, this book is so unlike every other book that has ever been written. Because this book is filled with prophecy. It's filled with promises from God. And here's what you need to know about every one of those promises and every one of those prophecies. we're, we're, We're shown through this story that when God says something, then that word must Come to pass. Like there's this verse in Jeremiah that says it like this. This is the Lord speaking. He says, for I am watching, this is God, I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. God is watching over his word to make sure that it's fulfilled. I even like the old King James version of this particular verse even better. Here's how it reads. God says, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Don't you just love that? It paints a picture of like God running around making sure that every one of his words comes to pass. He's, he's hastening to see that his word is fulfilled. Now we spent this entire evening dissecting and discussing one specific prophecy and all of the things that had to come into play to fulfill this one word. But did you know something? Did you know that there are over 25 prophecies in the Bible. About a quarter of your Bible is prophetic in nature, at least when it was written. Of those 2,500 prophecies, about 2,000 have already been fulfilled, exactly, specifically, perfectly. You say, what about the remaining 500? Well, those are getting ready to be fulfilled, and some of them are even unfolding in our day right now, and now that should excite you. But more to the point, as we look back and see that God has, without fail, fulfilled his word, his promise, his prophecies to us with 100% accuracy, it should give you confidence about the prophecies he's given to us regarding the future. His word will come to pass, his word must come to pass, he's hastening to see that it comes to pass. And that gives me confidence when I read this book Because I know that only God could do something like that. In fact, there's there's one part where where God, I love God, he, he, he mocks the false gods and the idols a little bit. This is in Isaiah 41, verse 22. And he challenges them to predict the future. He says to the false gods, tell us, you idols, what's going to happen? Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. I love God. He's just, he's daring the false gods and the idols to predict the future because he knows he can't. He knows they can't. God alone can do that because he alone lives in the future. He alone is outside of time. And so he alone can predict it accurately. And that gives me confidence about the prophecies he's made. But it also gives me confidence about the personal words he's spoken to me. And it should give you confidence about the personal words he's spoken over you. You see, God, he gives us personal words, doesn't he? And he's hastening to see those words fulfilled in your life as well as mine. You need to know that he hasn't forgotten you, His word hasn't fallen to the ground. When God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And there are 7,000 promises in his word. And every one of those promises, he intends for his kids to claim. So be encouraged by that fact. Now, there's one other thing I want to close with. And it's the other thing that I think this story does. It inspires us to look for ways to partner with God in what he's doing in the world around us. This takes us back to what Daniel did as he holds his Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and he's reading Jeremiah, and he's reading the daily news, and he's saying, God, what are you doing? Where are you working? How are you moving? Because I want to get involved. And by the way, folks, this is an area where I feel like we are particularly blessed Being members of Maranatha Chapel here in Southern California because your pastor, my dad, is a guy who, like Daniel in the Bible, he He looks for the convergence of current events and ancient prophecy. And he doesn't just stop there so he can geek out and be like, isn't this cool? But he looks for ways for us as the people of this church, looks for ways for us to get involved and to step into the story. One of the the themes that we've kind of built this ministry around is don't just sit on the sidelines. God wants you to step into the story. You say, how do I do that? Well, there's a number of ways to get involved. I mean, it's the whole impetus behind our Nehemiah project. That was a, a scripture that my dad read in Jeremiah that talks about how in the latter days and in the last days, the, the Gentiles will carry the Jews back to their homeland on their shoulders. And he's saying, God, what does that mean for us as a church? And I think it means that we're supposed to help Jews who are trying to make Aliyah. And did you know that this church has given millions of dollars to help fulfill ancient prophecies? And if you've given to the Nehemiah Fund, you're a part of fulfilling prophecy. You're living like Daniel. That's pretty cool. And then he sees connections even between like a guy like Cyrus, And you look at what the modern Orthodox Jews said about when Trump moved the the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and regardless of what your politics are, you have to see a connection there because the temple was not just something that was destroyed and rebuilt once, but there are patterns in prophecy. That's one of the ways that we've learned to interpret scripture around here. When when prophecy comes, it's not just a once. prophesied and once fulfilled, but oftentimes there are dual fulfillments. And so just as there was no temple and then the temple was rebuilt, well, we know that the temple is going to be rebuilt again. This Bible speaks of another temple that is going to be in Israel during the last days. And, and I believe that we could be living in the days where that prophecy becomes a reality. I mean, we have the Abraham Accords that were recently signed into being. They didn't receive a lot of attention in the mainstream media, but make no mistake about it, this is front page headline news in heaven. This is significant stuff. And you're saying, well, what does it all mean? It means you better be reading your Bible. And you better be watching the news and you better be interpreting what you see happening in the world around you through the lens of what God has said in his word. Why? Because God is hastening to see that his word is fulfilled. He said, heaven and earth are going to pass away. Jesus said this, but, but not one word that I've spoken is going to fall to the ground. I'm going to fulfill all of it. And so we know Jesus is coming back soon and we're going to see him. And when we do, we have this opportunity to enter his presence and hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So let's look for ways to get involved. Let's stay connected. Let's be plugged in. Let's not bury our heads in the sand like an ostrich. But let's keep our ears open and our eyes and heads lifted heavenward, and let's keep our hands ready to respond. When God says, move, we want to say, God, where are you moving? What are you doing? I want to get plugged in. I want to be involved. I want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Because God is not done, and he's not done with you. If you're here, if you have a pulse, it means God has a purpose for your life. Now, what that purpose is, that's for you to figure out. It's for him to reveal to you, and he will. But it starts with you saying, God, I'm ready. God, I'm here. And that's how the restoration process begins. It begins with a return, and then there's a restoration, and then there's revival. There's a return. There's a restoration, and there's a revival. And the restoration process, parts of it are painful. It might take a little bit longer than you like. It might take, require him tearing some things down in order that he can build things up. But in the end, the end product makes it all worth it. So let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. It's rich. It's so rich. We just scratched the surface of it tonight. We did did some digging, we looked at prophecy, we looked at history, and we saw how all of it is interconnected, all of it is really, at the end of the day, all of history tells his story. It's his story, it's your story, Jesus. It's all about you, everything that happens in this world It all leads us back to you. And so wherever we're at tonight, I pray that this would be a watershed moment. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be pricked. I pray that our hearts would be stirred. I pray that our hearts would be engaged, that we would get excited, that we would stop looking at the Bible like it's just, you know, a fun centerpiece for a discussion or something to... To make us feel good or give us a few tips about how to live our best life now or whatever, Lord. We want to come to the Bible and see it for what it is, Lord. You alone have the words of eternal life, Peter said. Without you, we'd be utterly lost, hopeless. You came, and we have the confidence that you came and that you're going to come again, because as we look back, we see that you fulfilled every prophecy hundreds and hundreds, thousands of them. So it gives us confidence as we move into an uncertain future that, that, that our lives are, are held in the, the very capable certain hands of, of a God who loves us, a God who knows us, calls us by name. We're going to move into a time of worship and communion. And I'll just invite you to, as you feel led, you can pray. Spend time with Jesus. Do business with God. Get right with him in your heart. And then as you partake of the bread on your own, and as you drink the cup, remember the cross, he said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Remember me, Jesus said. Don't forget me. Don't forget what I did for you. Don't forget how I loved you, how I bled for you, how I died on the cross, how I lived the life that you could never live and died the death that you deserve in order that you might find forgiveness and freedom and hope and healing and life and joy and peace and everything you ever wanted. Jesus is calling some of you back home and tonight is the first night of this restorative work that God is going to begin in you and it's not just about you. He restores you in order that you might become a healer and a restorer of others. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.